Hello, my friends. This is Dr. Gracie Christie, and this is Conversations with Consequences, the podcast of the Catholic Association. Today, I am interviewing Dr. Mary Jo O'Sullivan. Dr. O'Sullivan um, is, I met her many years ago when I was training as a medical student, and she at that time was the head of maternal fetal medicine at Jackson Memorial Hospital, where I trained as a medical student at the University of Miami. My husband got to know her better because he was an, he became an, an OBGYN resident, and he was a resident under her for um, almost two years until he switched over to radiology. Um, both my husband and I developed a, a great respect for Dr. O, who, that's how we called her, uh, that's how people call her at the hospital, uh, for Dr. O, because um, she, was, uh, she was stern and strong and exactly the person that you would want to be running a very busy labor floor with every possible complication and, and, um, and always, always with the most, uh, the most incredible mercy and love for the patients, both the mothers and the children, and that's what she was known for at the hospital, her great respect for all her patients. So Dr. O, thank you so much for joining me today on Conversations with Consequences. It's a great pleasure. To oh. join you, Jason, well, Dr. Christie. I have to tell you, it's um, it's so I, I'm so thankful that you're on with us because um, we you and I have talked a few times. Uh, Dr. O is not only uh, a woman who's um, who has tremendous experience in maternal fetal medicine, but she's also um, a person who's taken the time to uh, to be to get uh, a master's in bioethics. And she understands all the ethical ramifications of all the things that happen uh, when a woman is pregnant and, and she comes to the doctor. And Dr. O brings that uh, pro-life bioethics to every encounter. And so um, she's, I know she's helped me many times when I've had a question, not uh, sometimes about practice, but sometimes just about the things we talk about at the Catholic Association and on our podcast because it's important to understand exactly what we're doing. So Dr. O understands all of these things. Recently, and one of the things Dr. O does is that she works for, she does abortion pill reversals. And uh, recently, um, I was able to help her out with one of these cases, and I became so interested in that process. So I've asked Dr. O to come and talk to us about it. So Dr. O, could we start by explaining to our listeners uh, what a medical abortion is? Because I think people... Most people don't understand all these these technical terms. Well, a medical abortion is uh, using two drugs. One of them is RU486, and the other one is a drug called misoprostol, which is very similar to Cytotec. In fact, it's the same drug. And what happens is women who um, go for an abortion to a center that does abortions and agree to a medical abortion are uh, given both the RU486, which they must take before they leave that clinic, and then they are given to the Cytotec to take it home, or the mesoprostil. I may use the terms interchangeably. Um, so they're given this mesoprostil to take 24 hours later, uh, and again, 24 hours after that. And the reason they do it this way is that the RU486 is a drug that interferes with the placental production of progesterone. And um, then that's followed by the, the mesoprostil, which causes uterine contractions and uterine evacuation or an abortion. So, uh, Dr. O, this, um, 
So the first drug, if I could make sure that our listeners understand, the first drug cuts off progesterone, and progesterone is what keeps the baby, uh, I mean, just to speak in very broad terms, keeps the baby alive. Uh, when the embryo is, is very small, the progesterone makes sure that the, that the embryo is getting the right, um, all the right nutrients. Is that correct? It's essential to the support of placental transfer, yes. Okay, that's the, med- <laughs> that's the scientific way to say it. So They say to feed the baby, yes. Yeah, to feed the baby. So when, when, when the first drug is ingested at the clinic, and you know what, I want to tell the listeners, this is, a, this is something I found out because I called my local Planned Parenthood office. Planned Parenthood charges the same amount of money for an abortion that's performed surgically in their center, uh, a first trimester abortion, as they do for a medical abortion, which is basically they watch a lady take the pill and then they take her home and then she goes home and aborts at home into, I guess, her toilet in a very painful manner. And I would just, both prices at my local health, um, at my local Planned Parenthood clinic, it's $500 for both abortions, even though one is a lot more work intense and, and it has a lot, a lot, a, a much greater cost to Planned Parenthood. So just to point out to our listeners that it's in Planned Parenthood's best interest to promote the constant, you know, the, the more and more usage of medical abortions. But going sure. back, going back to the medical abortion, the first drug uh, cuts off the nutrition to the baby, so the baby usually dies. The second drug, taken a day or two later, causes the expulsion of the baby. Correct. Okay. So um, an abortion pill reversal is, is what? It's an attempt to try to reverse the effect of the RU486 by giving these women high doses of progesterone to take uh, for three days, and then the dose is reduced, but still uh, progesterone continuously until they complete the 12th week of gestation, so long as, of course, there's growth of the baby and a fetal heart rate. Okay, and this is a choice that women make on their own, correct? I mean, first they choose the abortion, and then what? They choose the abortion, and as I've asked many of them, what, what do, why, why did you change your mind? I walked out of that place. This is the commonest one. I walked out of there and said, what have I done? Or I thought about it and decided I really didn't want to take the rest of the medicine, and I really didn't want to take that first pill, but I had no choice. Do you think they might be afraid of, of the second pill, which causes violent uterine contractions and pain? It's a little hard to, to know. I mean, whether that's really the reason. I've never had one of them tell me that, mm, okay. that that's what they were afraid of. It was mostly, what have I done? Or why did I do this? Or I really want to keep this baby. I really don't want to do this. Oh. And sometimes when they get home and they tell their the baby's father, you know, or their family, um, then they get support not to continue the pregnancy. Mm, that's right. So then maybe the support that they thought they didn't have, they do actually have. And, they have, yeah. And they're able to, and, and they want to at least try to walk it back. Right. And they have to go after this. I mean, the woman who decides that she really doesn't want to do this or the woman who wants to look at a possibility of uh, reversing the medicine has to take the time and go look it up mm-hmm. in the computer or her friends or something. She has to seek this herself. So you don't think, okay, so this is a silly question, but no one at Planned Parenthood or wherever she, whoever gave her the medical abortion, no one's saying to her, hey, if you change your mind, there's a chance we could walk this back. Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> I doubt it very much. I don't see any signs up there that, I don't know about signs up there that say that, and I don't know of any legal 
ramifications that say this is what they have to do at Planned Parenthood or any other abortions, uh, any other abortion service. Um, okay. Or so... even in a even in a doc- I don't know about what a private doctor does. You know, mm-hmm. who does abortions like this? I don't know if he gives them the option that, oh, by the way, if you change your mind, call this number. Mm-hmm. And, oh, okay, so I'm glad you brought up the number. What is, how does this work? So a woman uh, goes home, she already took the first pill, and she says to herself, oh, my gosh, I didn't realize my husband, you know. Or my boyfriend or my, or boyfriend. my family or I myself. Mm-hmm. So I didn't I realize that that this baby, uh, this this is someone I can welcome into the world. I have that support. Um, mm-hmm. How? What? What does she do next? She googles um, abortion she pill. Google. Yeah. She has to Google it. Mm-hmm. She has to Google it. So, what will she find if she googles it? When she googles it, she finds the phone number of the uh, hot, the hotline phone number, and you, then she calls. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, she, do you know it offline? But I'm gonna, I'm gonna, no. I'm gonna link it. I'm gonna put that link on our podcast. But uh, and, and she calls that number and she speaks to one of the nurses who is on. There's a nurse on call twenty four seven. Mm-hmm. And uh, the nurse speaks to her, uh, discusses, you know, how she feels about it, why she's changed her mind. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe she doesn't even bring that up, but um, makes sure that she understands what this might entail and then gets the information from her regarding her name, date of birth, phone number, um, age, gravity, the how many times she's been pregnant, which isn't really important. But, you know, it's part of the full medical history that somebody like me who is going to prescribe the medicine is going to either get from the nurse or and or from the patient because most of the time I also speak to the woman who decides that she wants to take the abortion pill reversal program. Mm-hmm. And um, then it's, in, it's a matter of explaining to her what the risks are of RU486, which by itself, by the way, does not cause congenital malformations. That's a good um, point. We need to come back yeah. to that, Dr. O. Right. Whereas the cytotech or the mesoprostol, which is the same drug, indeed does cause, uh, can, can cause congenital malformations. So we explain to the patient, or the nurse does, that she needs to get the progesterone ideally started within 24 hours, but sometimes it's 48 hours. And nonetheless, we'll try. I mean, we have nothing to lose and everything in the world to gain if it works. Um, and, and that's and an then, important point, Dr. O, if you don't mind if, we, if I just drill down on that for a moment. Is there mm-hmm. any, if, if a woman takes the first pill and the baby, and she doesn't take any rever- uh, abortion reversal pill protocol, but, but she doesn't take the second pill of the medical abortion, and the, ba- the you said that the, that first pill doesn't damage the baby. Does, the baby's not going to be born with birth defects because of no. that first pill. If it survives, right. If it survives. No. So basically mm-hmm. the first pill is sort of all or nothing. It either kills the baby or the baby's born fine. As, as far as we know, and all the information that I know of that's available says that. Okay. Then if the woman does choose to try to reverse the medical abortion, the progesterone, which is the medicine mm-hmm. that, that she will be um, given a prescription for and she will take, that medicine does not, that, that has no dangerous side effects for the woman? No, it does not. In fact, that's the hormone that you want to, that's being destroyed by the RU-46 so that's what you're trying to support by giving it to her. So you're just uh, to giving raise her own progesterone level. So you're just giving her something she would have on board anyway in a normal right. setting of a pregnancy. Right. Okay. Right. That's a very important point. That's correct. Mm-hmm. And then you, the the other thing you have to keep in mind is you talk when we talk to her, she's the one that goes to the pharmacy and picks up the medicine. Mm-hmm. She's the one that takes the medicine. We're not giving it to her. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. We are simply providing for her what she's asked us, what, what we have discussed and what has the potential to reverse the RU46. So it's all patient choice. It's all the client's choice. Mm-hmm. It's all the woman's choice. You know, when I posted, I was telling you before we talked, before we recorded a moment ago, that I posted about about this on Twitter, and I got some very angry responses. And what's interesting is that the people who are most angry about abortion pill reversal are the people who call themselves pro-choice, which is very, it's a very interesting, it's ironic, isn't it? Yeah, that's very strange. I mean, if you're pro-choice and a woman decides to go against her original choice, aren't you supposed to support the second choice as well as the first one? Well, it seems reasonable to me that... That a woman unless, can choose both ways. Unless pro-choice means pro-abortion. Yeah, well, I suspect I suspect that must be true most of the time. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> another thing that, uh, okay, so another question I have for you. So, okay, so there's a, there's a hotline and there's a nurse that mans the hotline 24 hours a day. And then the nurse refers the client, the woman who is making this decision to try to reverse the abortion. She refers her to one of several dozen doctors maybe that work for this website? A little bit different from that. The nurse contacts one of us uh-huh. who works for, who, who volunteers for the site. And we in turn contact the client. Is, is there any cost to the client? Does the patient no. or the client have to pay for any of the service? Other than the medication? No. Even the ultrasounds that she she's to get, we try our very best to find providers who will do that ultrasound on a weekly basis for free. And the ones that are really very, very good at it are Heartbeat of Miami and the Pregnancy Counseling Centers of the Archdiocese of Miami. Mm -hmm. So so when a woman goes to get a medical abortion, she's paying $500 plus for this service (laughs) that she's being given. But when she wants to when she wants to try to to go back and reverse it, this is not costing her any money except the medication, which is probably not very expensive, I imagine. Yeah, that's the only thing she's paying for. And you're, the insurance covers it, I believe, but depending upon insurances as well, of course. Mm-hmm. Well, that's amazing. But it's not expensive. Mm-hmm. Well, that's amazing. So, okay, so that was one of the... Oh, here's another question, Dr. O. What kind of doctors work, volunteer at this hotline? Is everyone who volunteers there an OBGYN? I don't think so. I think family practice and OBGYN happen to be the two more common. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I have no idea overall whether internal medicine doctors or, yeah, or the internal medicine doctors also participate. Um, well, really, you know, I, I've never looked into that. When I, so when I posted, when I tweeted about it on Twitter, I got a lot of people saying, you're just a radiologist. What are you doing interfering? <laughs> they said, oh. you're not licensed or you're not, a, you're not allowed, but I, I don't want to fight That's with anybody. True. Yes, no, ex- could you explain? True. I didn't want to fight with anybody in Twitter, but I don't think people understand what doctors are allowed and not allowed to do. Doctors are allowed to write prescriptions for anything that they deem, whether it's within the range or scope of practice, or uh, it doesn't have to be within the scope of practice, but for a drug that really does no harm. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, Dr. O, I'm I'm a radiologist. It's true. I'm only a radiologist. But I, I do a lot of fetal ultrasound, and yeah. and to mm-hmm. me, the fetus is just as much my patient as the woman absolutely. who carries. And I know that you feel well, the same way. Oh, absolutely. The baby is, as far as I'm concerned, I read ultrasounds uh, all the time in the first trimester, 
And I never, I have stopped, I stopped a long, long time ago by calling that little uh, embryo even an embryo. Uh, when I look at the, when I record the ultrasound and with heartbeat, I say the baby's heart rate is whether it's five and a half weeks or six weeks or eight weeks or 24 weeks, it's the baby. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not going to be anything else but yeah. a baby if it survives. And, it's not going to be a fish. It's not going to be a, a cat. It's only going to be a human baby if it gets through the pregnancy. Well, Dr. O, you, um, you, you saw many, many, many thousands of pregnancies through to their conclusion, and you probably never received anything into your hands that wasn't a human baby, right? Absolutely not. <laughs> Absolutely not. Even the babies with the most severe malformations are human beings. That's absolutely right. You know, one of the things, Dr. O, when you when when you ran the labor floor and you ran the maternal fetal program, everybody understood about you that you had uh, a real a real deep respect and love for the littler patient, the smaller patient. Um, mm. And and I think that that's very that's very lovely. And and I wish that every doctor, every OBGYN was like you. Well, thank you. I, I was very fortunate too to be in an area where we had a fantastic neonatal intensive care unit and I used to make rounds in the unit with them every Wednesday and to see those little tiny tiny uh babies born at 23 weeks you know made Mm -hmm. of course they didn't all survive of course not but to see them survive and grow and yes they went through a lot but their parents wanted those babies desperately they did and that's what everybody was there to support it's amazing you know when you think mm-hmm. about it, Dr. O, it's amazing that in a medical field that is that works about maybe 90-something percent of the time, bringing children as, as safely as possible into the world with, with, with the greatest health that they, they can possibly muster, right, for these, for these babies. Certainly. Yeah, we try. And then there's this section that's also, that devotes themselves to destroying the children. That's, that's very sick that those, that those two things can coexist in the same profession. Gracie, with an aside, um, you need to know this. There was a period of time on the labor floor where doctor, where the uh, chairman of the department decided to change, to shift the second trimester abortions to the labor floor. Oh, no. So I would have, and I had terrible times with my nurses over this, of course, naturally, mm-hmm. uh, because in one bed, I would have a woman um, desperately trying to keep her baby. Mm-hmm. And then the other bed, a woman desperately trying to get rid of her baby. And they would be old, both at the same gestational age. And it would just be very difficult, you know. Um, and it was really, it took a lot of grace of the Holy Spirit, that's all I can say, to give both of them equal care. But oh my gosh, yeah. this was what I tried to teach my staff. And it took them a while, you know, but eventually they, they bought into it. And um, finally, of course, that all began to change. But for a, there was quite a period of time when this is what we had to do because it was in the best interests of the woman who was having an abortion to be on the labor floor. Can you believe that? Because the best care, according to the chairman, was provided by the labor floor team. I really didn't know that, Dr. O. When I, trained mm-hmm. at, when I was training at the hospital, there weren't any abortions performed there that as far as I could. I, I never heard of one. They were never performed there. The abortion was performed on another floor, uh-huh. and the patient was transferred down. That's amazing. I really didn't know that. That's a sad. That's sad to hear. Yeah, it was sad, but you know, um, 
like I had to tell the nurses at the time, listen, you didn't and I didn't and none of us on this floor performed that abortion. However, this woman requires care regardless of how we feel about what's happening, but she requires care for herself. Mm -hmm. And we have to do the best we can to give her that care and empathy as much as our hearts can give her. Well, I know, I know, Dr. O, that you have tremendous empathy and also for the women that you're helping now with the abortion pill reversal. Would you say, um, we, it's time for us to stop, but would, what do you, tell us some last words that from just from your, your experience with these women that, that make another choice. First they choose to abort and then they, then they choose to try and save that baby. Um, mm-hmm. what's, what's your overarching uh, feeling about, about working for abortion pill reversal? Well, I'm very happy to do it. I love doing it. It sometimes it is very difficult and trying, especially for the woman who really desperately wants that baby and then the medicine doesn't work. Mm. And you know, trying to carry her through that too as to get her to care and so on. But um we know that I mean the attachment you have with that patient isn't the same as if you had seen her in your office, you had time to look at her face to face. That's right. Uh, you know, it's not quite the same attachment, but I always tell them, look, I'm available 24 seven. I don't care what, what happens. If you need to talk to somebody, just call me. You have my number. Oh, that's so kind of you, Dr. O. I'm sure that these women are no. very fortunate to have you, whether or not they're able to succeed in keeping their babies. Exactly. You know, I think that's the important thing. They just need that something to somebody or to know that there's somebody who's willing to walk the walk with them. That's you know, right. um, regardless of what choice they made in the first place. And we're all women, you know, and we know that one minute we decide one way and another minute we decide another way. You exactly. know, and who am I? Who am I to judge why she decides to do what she decides to do or why she changes her mind? Who am I? It sounds to me like people who are pro-choice should support this choice. Right, Dr. O? Exactly. (laughs) Isn't that called choice? That's choice. The choice to abort and the choice to change your mind. Thank you so much, Dr. O. I want to have you on again, maybe even within the same episode. This is a short segment, Uh, but I'd really love to talk to you about also, so because you have so much to tell us as somebody who uh, understands all these processes so well about late-term abortion and how, Mm -hmm. um, how that works and who, you know, Whatever. It's a very complicated topic for most people, for me, of course, too. Um, mm-hmm. So I'd love to have you on again. And um, just to tell our listeners, we've been listening, we've been talking to Dr. Mary Jo O'Sullivan, who for decades was the maternal fetal, uh, the head of maternal fetal medicine at Jackson Memorial Hospital at, of the University of Miami, where I trained many moons ago. And um, mm-hmm. and I will link at the bottom at, at our on our podcast page. I'm going uh, for this episode. I'm going to link to the abortion pill reversal uh, hotline, and I'm also going to link to the studies, um, the the medical studies, the clinical s- studies that have shown uh, the the kind the kind of success that Dr. O has has experienced uh, working with abortion pill reversal. So thank you so much, Dr. O. Okay, Dr. Christie, God bless you for the work you're doing. No, God bless you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye.
Welcome back, friends. This is your host, Dr. Gracie Christie. This is Conversations with Consequences from the Catholic Association. Today, we have Dr. Mary Jo O'Sullivan, who is an OBGYN with many decades of experience running a very busy maternal fetal medicine program in our local uh, university hospital, Jackson Memorial Hospital, the, at, from the universe of the University of Miami. And uh, she has she has more experience probably than, well, at least as much as any other OBGYN in the country. She is very kind to come on and talk with me and so and to uh, and to all our listeners about um, these very touchy ter- these very difficult subjects to understand, which are uh, all the all the uh, all the ramifications of terms like late term abortion and. Um, chemical abortion and abortion pill reversal. So we talked about abortion pill reversal in the last uh, segment, but now we're going to be talking about late-term abortion. And welcome to the show, Dr. O. Thank you, Gracie, and thank you for having me on. <coughs> Dr. O, this, uh, the, uh, the, very recently, uh, just in the last few days, or uh, last week, if this podcast uh, radio show airs a little later, we heard that, we read all over the place, that Dr. Wen, who... Uh, was the president of Planned Parenthood for only a little over eight months, was terminated uh, in her in in her eighth month from her presidency at Planned Parenthood, and this is a really interesting thing because it reveals what Planned Parenthood is all about, and Planned Parenthood is not about healthcare. Well, I think that is so true because, you know, um, when she took over. Uh, one of the things, apparently, and this I'm, I'm getting all of this, of course, not being a member of Planned Parenthood or not on their board, so I have to go on what the media says, and, I, and I'll admit the media is not always truthful. But anyhow, one of the things that they pointed out that was a reason that the board gave for ceasing her employment was that she was not of the same ilk as the members of the board. Uh, in terms of what the direction of Planned Parenthood should be. Mm-hmm. She had wanted to take Planned Parenthood a little bit more uh, along the lines of giving women's health care and a little bit less of pushing abortion. Right, like and, uh, the political um, advocacy part of Planned Parenthood, right. which is such a huge part of their organization, maybe Maybe in their minds, it looks like now since they got rid of Dr. Wen, maybe the main part of their organization is to keep alive those funding streams that come from our tax dollars, right, from from friendly oh, politicians. That's what I think. I think that um, they're, they're very worried about their funding. I think there's no question that they're worried about their funding, uh, especially with Trump as president. But I think um, in that worry, they really want to stay focused on the abortion issue and um and, and that's very sad, really, because they should be giving more women's health care, focusing more on that. And that would really be better in their better interest in serving the communities in which they place themselves, the inner cities. Yeah, but know, Dr. Um, o, Dr. O, I think that that that's that sort of sounds like that sounds wonderful. But Planned Parenthood, uh, the OBG, the GYN, <laughs> I'm not going to say OB because they don't actually deliver babies. But the GYN ideals of Planned Parenthood aren't really healthcare, right? I mean, they're no, not. They're, they're not abortion. How, they're abortion, no. and that's not how mm-hmm. you, as a, as a doctor. I'm not even going to say a pro-life doctor. Just as a classic noble doctor, that's not how you see medical care uh, directed at women no. who are pregnant. No, because women's not, uh, pregnancy is not a disease. You know, uh, you don't. You don't. In a disease, you treat the disease or you cut it out. 
okay? But pregnancy mm-hmm. is not a disease. It's a normal physiologic state. And to say that, you know, every, the pregnancy, abortion is a right, I have a little bit of difficulty understanding how it's the right to kill. And doesn't that, doesn't that idea that abortion is the right to kill, doesn't that come into horrifying, clarifying focus when we talk about late-term abortion, which is abortion in the last maybe 18, 20 weeks of pregnancy? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, it, initially, you know, it was only meant for um, a weeks uh, for this uh, late, oh, I should say, um, in the middle trimester. No. Yeah. In the second trimester to, to 24 weeks. Mm-hmm. And, but more recently, it's come to mean any gestational age. And there, there are a couple. Mix, there are very many misconceptions around late-term abortion. So just to lay the table for a moment about this topic, uh, late-term abortion is something that does happen in the United States because one oh, of the, yes. you know, one of the misconceptions is is that this is very rare. So it is rare compared to the many hundreds of thousands of abortions that are mm-hmm. happening in, in the, the first, first trimester. trimester yeah. That's right. But there's still mm-hmm. over. I believe the numbers are something like twelve thousand that we documented late-term abortions going on in the United States. Some of these mm-hmm. are performed at Planned Parenthood facilities, but not all. So that's one misconception that these are not, uh, that these are rare. So they're not rare. Also, the other misconception is that they are done for only two reasons, basically. Reason one is maternal health, because the, the, the mother is in grave danger of her life. And the other is that it's all, they're done for, otherwise done for f- fatal fetal disability. In other words, a disability of the fetus that is so great that the baby is going to be born and subsequently die. So mm-hmm. if we could talk about first, <clears throat> what it, what kind, okay, so first of all, is it, first of all, I can just say to our listeners, it's not true uh, from the Guttmacher Institute, from their web pages, and I can put a link on our, po- I will put a link on our podcast show notes. Most of these abortions are done for the same reasons first trimester First trimester abortions are done, which is for, um, you know, economic or social stresses in the mother's life. Um, That's correct. Yeah, that, they are not defi- They are not the most commonly done for uh, uh, maternal health, and that that uh, it's thought that it's necessary to terminate the pregnancy for her health. Which I have to say, um, there are ways of doing that and keeping the baby alive. Well, that's what uh, I want to. That's what I want you to explain to us. Because when yeah. people say, when people hear the words "mother is sick," the pregnancy needs to be terminated. What they understand is that mother is sick, the baby needs to be aborted. Meaning, the end result will be a dead baby and a healthy mother. So, tell us what's the real truth about what you do when you have a mom who's pregnant in her after twenty weeks, and she needs to have the baby. Removed, delivered, delivered. Yeah. So tell us what happens. Well, you, you know, there are many reasons why, of course, this has to be done. Amongst them is infection. For example, she has ruptured membranes, and she develops chorioamnionitis. Mm-hmm. And uh, chorioamnionitis is certainly uh, can lead to severe sepsis and maternal death. And so we have to deliver the pregnancy in that situation. Now, I won't say. I have to honestly tell you that I have had situations in which mothers are refused that, but I'll come back to that. So, okay, we, what we do in that situation is we load her up with antibiotics. We know that the baby and the placenta are infected, and so is the uterus, and so we have to empty the uterus in order to treat the infection. Mm-hmm. We are not willing the death of the baby, okay? Mm-hmm. We allow, we don't kill the baby before we deliver that baby because we don't know. We don't know that that baby definitely will not survive. 
we can tell her the chances are extremely poor that the baby will survive. But, you know, let's say you're 22, 23 weeks. It's not 100% that that baby's going to die. So do you think the baby... So you believe that the baby deserves a chance at life if the baby is a mom Absolutely. 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 Um, you, you don't kill the baby um, first. You go ahead and you deliver the baby. Hopefully, you know, maybe you're going to be fortunate. Maybe, maybe not. But it's not your aim to kill the baby. It's your aim to treat the maternal infection without which treating she's likely to lose her life or her uterus. Let's take another scenario please. besides infection. Let's take a scenario in which you have a mother with severe cardiac disease, mm-hmm. okay? And she's at a point where we really cannot, because of the stress of the pregnancy, because of the deterioration in her cardiovascular status uh, and the weakness of her heart muscles, whatever the case may be, um, we have to deliver her in order to relieve the, the um, increased circulating fluid volume, the stress on the heart, and so on. We do that after discussing it at great length and with the mother's consent. And I've had mothers refuse. Mm-hmm. But with the mother's consent, we go ahead and deliver her by the most expeditious means that are the least risk to her, which is usually vaginal delivery. And we induce labor. And, you know, we hope and pray that the baby will survive. She has a chance then to hold her baby, which they most of them want to do. Mm-hmm. But she has a chance to hold her baby. And if that baby is going to die in her arms or her husband or the baby's father's arms or maybe the grandmother's arms with the family surrounding them, that's a whole picture of such unbelievable love you cannot imagine. Oh, that's so beautiful, Dr. O. And it is beautiful. And it's it not killing. It's, it's no. not killing. It's, it's loving that child until its very last moment. Yeah. This child is a child that they loved in utero. They still love. Even though this baby's going to die, they love this baby. That is such a pretty picture you paint, Dr. O. And another misconception, I think it's a misconception, you can tell us, is that abortion is easier on the mom than delivery. Is that true? No. What do you mean abortion is easier on the mom? You mean by killing that baby first? I think people people imagine that if if a woman, well, even third trimester... Uh, people imagine that if a woman needs to have the, the pregnancy terminated, an abortion is an easier procedure on the mother than a birth. In other words, it's, either way, either way, she still has to go through labor. That's true. Unless you do a cesarean delivery. So what would she still has to go through labor? So you have have you done uh, when when the mother has to be delivered or the ba- the pregnancy terminated? Have you done both C sections and deliveries? Yes. Yes. And a woman's had a previous cesarean section, a scar of her uterus. Then you, you know, go especially, mm-hmm. yeah, it, depending. Uh, you know, there are uh, there are pros and cons. There are options. There are different ways of doing it. But if she's had a previous cesarean section, especially if it's been a longitudinal incision in her uterus, what we call classical, mm-hmm. no, then we then we go ahead and repeat the cesarean section. So in any if case, what if what if they want? What if the uh, people say, well, she should have an abortion in that case. They, she still needs to have a C-section, right? Because She's had a prior C-section, and it could be dangerous for her to labor? Even... It depends upon the type of cesarean section. Right, okay. If she's had a low-segment cesarean section, she can still labor. So You have to watch her carefully because there are risks, yes, mm-hmm. you know, but the risk is extremely low. So you don't, so the mother's health is not endangered in any way uh, with a delivery versus an abortion in her second no, or third trimester? Still, it's still the same procedure. Perfect. Okay, that's exactly what I needed you to explain. Dr. Mm-hmm. O. 
So it's that's the same procedure. Mm-hmm. So, so, so the okay. So we've put aside, we've put to bed the misconception that uh, late-term abortion is necessary for the mother's health versus birth. So you're proponing, <clears throat> sorry, proposing that a birth is better for the whole family, for the baby, of course, who gets a chance at life, but also for the whole family that gets to welcome that baby and keep loving that baby instead of having the baby killed. So I mm-hmm. think that's a, that's a wonderful point. And, and it goes hand in hand with your whole attitude towards um, medical care for pregnant women. Right, Dr. O? Yeah. Yeah. The best care for her. I, I, I want to tell you, and um, this is an aside, okay? Sure, go ahead. Um, I heard a story on NPR the other day, maybe two weeks ago, about this woman who had a baby with a severe congenital anomaly. And um, she was told that this baby is suffering in utero and that, you know, the baby, the pregnancy needed to be terminated and um, because the baby was undergoing such suffering. And if the baby were to survive, the baby would be suffering as well. I have a lot of issue with that. Um, Of course, I wasn't there. I don't know what the baby had. Uh, I wasn't the the, um, consulting um, medical person. But I I would take issue with some of those statements. Anyway, this poor woman, and she was she really was happy with her decision that she decided to have um, the pregnancy terminated. Uh, I don't know how what gestational age, but it was late in the pregnancy because she felt and she was being uh, kind she, and merciful to her child. Right. She felt that this, in her heart and soul, this was what she thought was best from what she was being told um, for her baby. Mm-hmm. And I I said to myself when I'm listening to this, uh, I wonder who is telling you this. Yeah. And I'm wondering what their thinking was. And what their agenda is. And because I don't think I ever, would ever have to say that to a patient. Even with the most severe anomalies, and I've seen some pretty severe anomalies, I've never had to say or felt that this baby was suffering in utero. Well, I'm, okay. glad, I'm glad you bring that up. And because the other misconception is that when children that these late-term abortions happen, if not for maternal health, uh, because that's necessary, which we know now that's not true, uh, they also happen because of fatal fetal disability. But I mm-hmm. know, we know, and this is, this is statistically, this is the truth, that uh, many fetuses, many babies are rejected through abortion because of minor disabilities, such as I've, yes. seen, I've seen babies eliminated because of a cleft lip, personally, as a, yes. as a radiologist. And or I'm because sure it's a male or a female. Yeah, because or because it's, a, because it's a girl. Or Down syndrome. You or know, Down I mean, syndrome, yes. Mm-hmm. So uh, this is also a misconception. Uh, be, be, people really think that these, the babies that are being aborted have these terrible, terrible disabilities where the baby's going to be in pain, as you, as you said in this mm-hmm. NPR interview, uh, and, and die a terrible death when their death could be quick and I guess they feel it's merciful, an injection into the baby's heart of the joxin and then and then killed. Mm-hmm. And I think that they forget that we do have a system of palliative care for these babies as well. When we know if we know that a baby is suffering, we can give the baby pain relief. Okay? Without killing the baby, we can give some pain relief. Mm-hmm. You know, and still leave the mother and baby together if that's her wish or the family's wish. Or if they do not want to have the baby with them, then um 
the baby goes to the intensive care unit nursery or something like that, but it's the intensive care unit nursery. And those the nurses really take great care of those babies. Dr. O, you told me a story one time, and it's, it's almost time for us to go, but I thought maybe we could finish by you retelling the story. I hope you remember it. It wasn't long ago that you told me. Uh, because I think this shows what a pro-life, what a what a what a pro-life OBGYN is like, and how their heart is moved by the plight of the children, not just the mothers. So you told me a story one time of a baby that was born too early to be to be viable, a baby that wasn't viable. Maybe maybe he mm-hmm. was twenty weeks or so, and you, uh, the mother, didn't want to oh. hold the child, and you carried mm-hmm. the baby with you. Can you tell the story to our listeners? Yeah, I've told, I've done this so many times on the labor floor where um, when a baby like this is born and the mother no longer wants to hold the baby or uh, have it with her, I will wrap the baby, I would wrap the baby in a towel and put the baby underneath my lab coat over my shoulder and walk around the floor with my lab coat closed and hold that baby so that when the baby, the baby is dying with somebody who cares. And at least that's the way I felt. I felt I cared about that baby I was loving that baby. I was keeping that baby warm. You know, and do you want, some people might say, oh, you're so damn proud. That wasn't why I was doing it. I, believe I was you. doing it because I cared about that child, and I didn't want it to die alone. Dr. O, if every OBGYN in the country were like you, this would be a mm-hmm. much better country, and uh, mothers would be, would be getting the help that they really need, the, the care, the, the dignified, human, noble um, highest care that a woman can receive when she's pregnant, which is love for her and her child. Well, you speak very highly of me, but let me tell you, I just couldn't do it any other way. I just could not. Well, we wish that everyone was like you, Dr. O. Thank you so much for joining us at Conversations with Consequences. You must join us again. I'm sure we have lots of stuff to talk about in the future. Okay. I'll be happy to do so. Thank you, God bless you and the work that you're doing, okay? Oh, God bless you, Dr. O. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. This week, as is customary, Father Roger Landry gives us a short but brilliant homily on this coming Sunday's Gospel. Please stay tuned for Father Landry And do look up his daily homily, written in audio, on his website, catholicpreaching.com. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's good once more to have a chance to enter with you into the conversation with consequences Jesus wants to have with us this Sunday. As Jesus heading up to Jerusalem teaching the multitudes, a person from the crowd asks him, how many actually make it to heaven? Jesus' response is as relevant to us as it was to his listeners 2,000 years ago. He didn't respond by giving a number or even a relative percentage because he hadn't come to die on Calvary to satisfy our curiosity. He replied by answering not how many would be saved, but how to be saved. Strive to enter through the narrow door, he tells us, for many will seek to enter and not be able. The word translated as strive is the Greek word to agonize. To get to heaven, in other words, we need to agonize, like Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane, to conform our will to the Father's. 
We need to work harder than an undrafted free agent gives everything he's got in training camp to make the cut. The width of the narrow door to heaven is the span of a needle's eye, the girth of the cross, something that is anything but easy to pass through. She's told us that many will seek tender through the narrow door but not make it. They will be left outside the door pleading. We ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets and remembering. Didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many miracles in your name? Jesus says that God will then reply, I never knew you. He's emphasizing that it's not enough to have heard him speak or to have eaten and drunk with him, even the Holy Eucharist, or to proclaim the gospel in his name, do exorcisms or even work miracles. After all, didn't Judas Iscariot do all of these things? But he never knew who Jesus was. Do we know him? Jesus wants to enter into intimate friendship in communion with us. But we need to follow him, not just on the outside, but on the inside. We need to become his true friend. Jesus, while he never answered the question of how many would be saved, did give us a snapshot of how many are heading in the direction of heaven and how many are on the path to hell. He said in St. Matthew's Gospel, For the door is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. And the door is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. This is not necessarily a picture of the way everything ends up, thanks be to God, because the whole mission of the church is to try to rescue people from the broad, easy, congested highway to hell and lead them to the narrow, uphill way of the cross that leads to life. But it is a striking image given to us by Jesus himself about the way the vast majority of people are trending. Quick glance at the practice of the Beatitudes or the sacraments or the Ten Commandments show us why Jesus' point is as valid today as it was two millennia ago. Many are simply not living the Beatitudes or receiving the sacraments. So many are breaking regularly one or more of the commandments. When we consider these relative trends and note how many times Jesus in the gospel preached about judgment and about hell, does it really make any sense that many presume that the final exam of life is going to be an easy A? that almost everyone will get to heaven. Hell, of course, was not part of God's original plan. He created everything good. He formed us in his image and likeness to share his life and love. But he took a tremendous risk in creating us free. And the radical consequence of that liberty is that we could misuse our freedom against him, others, and against ourselves. Jesus said that he had come into the world not to condemn it, but to save it. But then added, the one who rejects me and doesn't receive my word has a judge. The last day, the word that I have spoken will serve as judge. <clears throat> Those who reject his words of eternal life prefer to walk in darkness that rather than light, become their own judges by the way they respond to the truth God has revealed. C.S. Lewis once wrote, There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done, and those to whom God says, Thy will be done. Hell exists, therefore, not despite God's love, but precisely because of it, in order to honor the desires of those who don't want to live in communion with him and others, those who really don't want to know Jesus and the Father who sent him and the Spirit they themselves send. So much, therefore, rests on our freedom, on our choices. God loves us and indeed wants us to be saved, but he also wants us to love him back. And as St. Paul says, work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We can't take that gift of salvation for granted. We have to seize it. Jesus wants us to strive to make knowing him in prayer, in the sacraments, in others, in the church he founded, the greatest priority of our life. 
May each of us receive his help this Sunday, and after this consequential conversation, enter more fully into him who is the gate of the eternal sheepfold. God bless you. Thank you, Father Landry, for another wonderful homily segment. It's short, but it's very sweet and very good, and it prepares us for our Sunday, upcoming Sunday Gospel. And our, to our listeners, if you'd like to listen to Father Landry's daily homily, or, li- or read it, because it's also written out, you can go to catholicpreaching.com, and I highly recommend it. It's a wonderful way to do your daily meditation or your daily prayer. That's how I use it. Um, so thank you again, Dr. Uh, Father Landry. And so this was a one, to me, this was a fabulous episode. I hope that my, our listeners also enjoyed it. I'm Dr. Gracie Christie uh, with uh, Conversations with Consequences. We're a service of the Catholic Association. And we had Dr. Mary Jo O'Sullivan, who is a longtime, um, many decades uh, OBGYN, head of maternal fetal medicine at our local teaching hospital, a woman of tremendous experience, and more importantly, uh, one, a woman of tremendous uh, understanding of the dignity of every human life, especially the life of the unborn, of the little children, and then in her hands also the born. She told us a beautiful story. Um, I hope all of you enjoyed the podcast. And please join us next week. You can subscribe to our weekly podcast at thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts, or if you're listening on the radio, on the radio, Fridays at 11 a.m. on the Guadalupe Radio Network. <laughs>